Hello and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from the People's Friend in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team delve into our archives to find a story to read and then sit down for a wee chat about it. So, make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. This episode we're reading I'll Soon Be Home Again by Elizabeth Nolan. First published on the 6th of January 1945. Reading the story is friend fiction editor Lucy. Over to Lucy. When first Kathleen Winton had read her husband's letter, in which he said, I'll soon be with you all now. Expect me when you see me. I may not even wire. A great flood of joy and relief had swept over her. Then, almost immediately, all sorts of doubts and regrets had flooded her mind. She was sure Tom would be disappointed in all the children and think she had neglected the house and garden. And, indeed, the children had not followed the paths he had wanted them to take. She'd done her best, but all the same, she had failed. And tonight, this sense of failure was almost one of despair. She was very tired. It had been a heavy day in the tracing office in which she had worked three days a week ever since Tom had gone overseas. Perhaps when she'd got her shoes off and had a good warm and a cup of hot tea, she would not feel so depressed. So she called out quite cheerfully at the foot of the stairs. You're right, Elsa. Baby been good, adding, I'll be up presently, in response to that faint, yes mum. The cupboard underneath the stairs in which she put her coat and hat was full to overflowing. Clothes and shoes and mops and brushes and endless things that belonged to the tool shed or to the children's own rooms threatened to flow into the hall. She was always tidying it and it was always in this mess and muddle. For the moment, she felt defeated again. Then George called out from the kitchen. Fire's going, Mum. Tea's ready. George would be a big disappointment to his father, she told herself for the hundredth time. Though he'd done well at his secondary school, he had refused to go on to university. He'd wanted to earn money at once, he'd argued, and to get practical experience in the works. He'd go to night classes and swat for his degree in his spare time. As for telling Dad, he'd write to him himself. That was not all. Next thing she knew, he'd got a girlfriend. And from being a happy-go-lucky boy who liked to go for long bike rides with his pals, George had become quite a highbrow and a dandy. He'd begun to wear what Reg had called soppy ties and to treat them all at home rather disdainfully. That had gone on for weeks, and she'd been nice to the girl because it seemed diplomatic, though she knew that George didn't really like Russian plays and classical music. Then suddenly, he had changed again. He regained his fondness for swing, went out with his pals more often, and gradually became almost slovenly in his dress. It was the influence of the men at the works, she supposed, but it was very trying, and she hated Tom to come home and find his elder son like this. If only he'd kept on with his studies, that would have been something, for Tom had been desperately anxious that he should get his degree in engineering and a proper start in his career. Tea's ready, Mum, George called out again. Everything about George was outsize. His body, his smile, his kindly hands. He was really a great lumbering lad who was at a very awkward age and even in normal times it would have been difficult to keep him spruce and tidy. But he had a way with him. Whenever she was about to scold, he just grinned or handed her the evening paper or simply went out of the room. George would never quarrel with anybody but nevertheless he quietly went his own way, just like young Reg. And of course, she was always nagging at him to cut the hedge or mow the lawn or tidy the shed or mend this, that and the other thing about the house. 
Now she looked at Tim critically as he rose from the table, swallowing the last mouthful of cake she had made only last night. He'd evidently washed his face and given his hair a bit of a brush, but he hadn't changed his suit. Surely you're not going to meet Mildred in those clothes, George, she said reproachfully. I'm sure that if ever your father had come to me looking like that, not that he ever would. George scraped back his chair and grinned. Yes, Mum, I know. He gave her a quick kiss, then poured her out a cup of strong, hot tea. Reg has been in and out again, he volunteered, on his way to the door. He's round at Bill's. They're making some animals for Tony. Oh, are they? Kathleen's rocking chair, in which she had just begun to relax, was jerked to a standstill. She put the cup of tea down on the table. And they're using the last of Dad's wood, I suppose. And they'll break some more of Dad's tools. When I think of that shed as it was when Dad left it, and as it is now, really, George... Her voice took on an almost shrill note. George patted her on the back in an almost paternal manner. You worry too much, Mum, he soothed her. Just rest a bit. Elsa's all right. I've just been up. So long. With a last grin, he went swinging down the hall and slam went the front door. When everything in the warm kitchen had settled down into silence again, Kathleen sank back in her chair and closed her eyes, just for five minutes. Then she must bath the baby. It would be easier to bath him down here, in front of the fire, where everything was handy, but it might be better for Elsa if she bathed him upstairs. The doctor said that Elsa could not recover until she was brought to take a real interest in her child and in life about her. Thinking of Elsa and her problem brought Kathleen to her feet. She had written and told Tom about that whirlwind courtship and marriage and about the notification from the Admiralty of Jim's death and later on the birth of Tony. But she hadn't told him that Elsa was so sunk in grief that she couldn't face life without Jim. It would have hurt him too much to know that at 20, his little Elsa had lost heart and faith. He had always wanted the best for her, and for her to be secure and happy, and of course, courageous. In the scullery, Kathleen put her hand to her head and stood still for a moment, trying to think of all the things she must take upstairs. The enamel bath, the baby basket, flannel apron, towels, soap, sponge. Now, where was Tony's precious sponge? Even as she searched for it, she knew that Reg had had it for something or other. How tiresome he was. Elsa did just look up from the book she was pretending to read as her mother came into the room. She looked very lovely, very fragile like a bewitched princess in a picture book. Her apricot pink bed jacket was a present from Jim's mother, who was an invalid and a widow and very fond of knitting. The ribbon which tied up Elsa's ash blonde curls matched the jacket exactly. One of her friends had searched the shops for it and had got only a wan smile as a reward. Kathleen knew better than to ask her daughter how she was feeling because the doctor had warned her that that was not the line to take. The thing to do was to assume that she would be better tomorrow and would resume her responsibilities, although she had had one ailment after another and spent most of her time in bed since Tony was born. So Kathleen said brightly, I'll bath Tony up here tonight as it's so cosy and warm. I see that Mrs Wilmer has made you very comfortable. Has Tony been good? As Elsa merely nodded faintly and languidly picked up the novel again, Kathleen checked a gesture of impatience. She bent over the cot by the side of Elsa's bed. She felt the baby's feet, as warm as toast, but wet through as usual. Granny will pick you up and make you comfy in just a minute, she whispered. Poor little pet, how good he was. Everything ready at last, the little stool for her to sit on just by the bath in front of the fire. Kathleen faced the happiest hour of the day. 
It was so comforting to have a warm, drowsy baby in her arms again, to turn him over carefully, unpin him, take off his little vest, lower him slowly into the warm bath. Look, Elsa, she cried when she had dried and powdered the firm, plump little body. Look, Elsa, isn't he lovely? Proudly, she held up the baby for his mother's inspection. Elsa put down her book as if reluctant to come back to the world. She looked at her baby with sad, weary eyes. Yes, he is lovely, she whispered, and then immediately picked up the novel once more. Sad at heart, Elsa finished getting Tony ready for the night. He was a dear little fellow, just at his very nicest now, and there was really no one to appreciate him but herself. George didn't take much interest in babies, and although Reg was always making him some toy or other, he went rushing past the pram on his way indoors. If only Tom were here. Tom loved babies. He wouldn't really have minded how many they'd had. Kathleen was just about to give Tony his bottle when she heard the front door open and shut. She stopped to listen to the footsteps going along the hall, into the sitting room, into the kitchen, and then back along the hall. She knew by the heavy beating of her heart before that well-remembered voice called out, Anybody at home? That it wasn't George who had come back. It's Dad, she cried to Elsa. It's your dad. With the baby in her arms, she struggled to her feet. She flung the shawl around him instinctively as she hurried to the door. She and Tom met on the landing, and at first she was so breathless with excitement that she couldn't speak to him. It was too dark to see him properly, but he was smiling and very big and handsome and strong. He put his arms around her, embracing the baby as well. Why, Kathleen, he whispered, this is like old times. Oh, Tom, she said at last, oh, Tom, I'm so glad you're home. He kissed her again, and then he took the baby from her, as he'd so often taken a baby from her in the past. She knew that his face was serious now, and that there were questions he was wanting to ask. Go into Elsa, she whispered. She's so unhappy. She keeps on thinking of Jim. Perhaps there's something you can do, Tom. Tom nodded, too wise to make comment. As he went into Elsa, Kathleen felt the burden lift a little. Already, things were a little bit easier, just because Tom had come back. In the bathroom, Kathleen locked the door and leant against it. She was suddenly very tired. Though she had been expecting Tom for weeks and had known that he might walk in just like this, nevertheless his coming had been a shock. Her heart was playing odd tricks. Her legs felt weak. But in a minute or two she was washing her face and changing her dress. She had planned to buy a new dress and to have her hair nicely set. Tom had always admired her hair, and it was looking any old how. As for the dress, though it suited her and was red, Tom's favourite colour for her, she had worn it almost every day of his embarkation leave. Downstairs, she put more coal on the fire and began to tidy up the kitchen. What was there to give Tom to eat? She hurried to the pantry and viewed the shelves, only to find that Reg, yes, it must be Reg, had eaten the last of that jam tart. Luckily, there was enough bacon for Tom, and one egg and some potatoes to be fried up. But where was Reg? Anxiously, she glanced at the clock, after seven. In a fever of anxiety, she swept up the hearth, took a pair of Reg's shoes and dumped them in the scullery where they belonged till they were cleaned. Ever since he'd come back from that farm to which he'd been evacuated, Reg had been a handful. He wouldn't go to school. He wouldn't go to bed. He wouldn't go errands. If she sent him for anything, it took him ages to get there and back. 
On Saturdays, sometimes he was out the whole day, fishing or pretending to fish. On Sundays, he hammered and hammered away in Tom's shed, making things, spoiling Tom's tools and using his wood. Like George, he never quarrelled or argued. He just stolidly did what he wanted to do. He hated school anyway, he said in a defence. When he grew up, he was going to have a farm. Lo, Mum! Like a tornado, Reg had burst into the scullery and rushed into the kitchen. He held out excitedly for her inspection of a piece of wood which did faintly resemble some animal she'd seen at the zoo. Look, Mum, he cried, very eager and friendly. Ain't it grand? It's a dromedary. Dromedaries have one hump and camels have two. It's for Tony. Don't say ain't, his mother rebuked him sharply. How many more times have I to tell you? And look at your shoes and your suit and your hands and face. My goodness, where have you been? Without ceremony, she grabbed hold of his arm and rushed him to the scullery sink. She turned on the hot water tap and with her free hand groped about for the soap. Oh, mum, he wailed. Oh, mum, you'll break the dromedary. Let me put him down. Somehow, he wriggled away from her and rushed into the other room. With his back to the fire, he glared at her defiantly. A small, sturdy boy with a dirty face, tousled hair and a very shabby, much-darned blue jersey. Reg, she pleaded, suddenly realising that he didn't know what it was all about, that he wasn't used to such rough treatment. Reg, be a good boy. Go in there and wash your face and make yourself as tidy as you can. I'm hungry, Mum, he protested, and I want to show this to Tony. Tony's asleep, and oh, Reg, don't be difficult, not tonight, when Dad's just home. Reg gave a wild yelp. Dad here? Where? Where is he? And where's my victory ship? Where is it, Mum? I left it on the dresser, all ready for when he came home. I'll find the ship. I put it in a safe place. You shall have it as soon as ever I've made you presentable. Without more ado, once again Kathleen grabbed hold of her young son and swept him into the scullery, but it was too late. There were footsteps on the stairs, and there was Tom, standing in the doorway, looking at Reg, seeing him at his very worst. Kathleen sank limply into her chair. She felt done for, defeated. Reg was no credit to her. He was unruly and obstinate. She couldn't do anything with him. But she had intended to have him looking clean and tidy at least when his father came home. Well, Reg, Tom was saying slowly, looking keenly at his young son who had backed against the dresser. Just in from play. Almost immediately he went on as if sensing that Reg found it awkward to speak. What's that you've got there? It's a dromedary, said Reg at last, handing the object to his father, for Tony. Kathleen had seen that his lips were quivering and knew that he was ashamed to have his father find him like this. He was proud of Dad and was always telling his friends what a wonderful engineer he was, building huge bridges and things. He was only a little boy after all, very small he looked beside Tom, who seemed enormous in his battle dress. When he saw his mother looking at him, Reg arrested a movement to touch his nose with the back of his hand. He'd suddenly got the snuffles. Where was his hanky? Almost immediately, he found one thrust into his hand, a big one of Dad's. He looked up and smiled gratefully, and Kathleen's anger and annoyance completely melted. Without a word, she got up and took the victory ship, which Reg had made as a surprise gift for Tom, out of the top dresser drawer. She handed it to Reg and then went into the scullery, closing the door behind her. She would leave the boy to make his own way with his father. But when Reg had gone up to bed at last, his face shining with soap, looking almost angelic in his old pink pyjamas, very proud indeed because Dad had said the ship was really well made, Kathleen flew to his defence. 
Tom was lighting a spill at the fire. He hates school and his teacher says he's not very attentive, but he's got plenty of common sense and pluck and anyway, if he's going to be a farmer, it doesn't matter very much if he's not clever at lessons like George. I know he's rough and ready in his manners. That's because of being with the lads on that farm. But he never tells lies. I've never known him to tell a lie and he doesn't answer me back. If he's too independent, I expect it's because he was evacuated and since he came home, I've been too busy to give him much attention, what with my job and Elsa and the baby and everything. As she paused for breath, Tom said quietly, from what you've told me and from what I've seen myself, I should say he's a boy to be proud of. I should have hated a namby-pamby son. And he's very affectionate, Kathleen went on. He doesn't show it, but he's very fond of us all. And he adores young Tony. He's always making him something and being disappointed because the baby's too young to be responsive. Tom's pipe was drawing nicely now. And he was standing looking at Kathleen as if his eyes could not have enough of her. But Kathleen was hardly noticing. She was worked up. She must explain all about the children, about all of them, tonight. George would be in presently and she must tell Tom what to expect. So she burst out. And George, George is a good boy too, grand at getting up in the morning and lighting the fire. He's been a great comfort to me. I don't know what I should have done without him. You'll be disappointed because he went into the works, because I know how ambitious you were for him. But all the same, I'm, I'm sure he'll do very well because he knows what he wants and he's a hard worker. His boss speaks very, very well of him. As for that girl, he'll grow out of her. It's amazing the number of things a lad grows out of. Tom put down his pipe in its old place, in the old bowl at the end of the mantelpiece. Seeing him do that made Kathleen realise fully that Tom was really home again, really with them, and this time for always. He took her hands in his and looked down at her, very tenderly. Her cheeks were scarlet. She couldn't say any more, feeling suddenly exhausted. Sensing her fatigue, he drew her down onto a chair. I've seen George, he said very quietly. We met at the corner of the road and I agree with all you said. He's a fine chap. He'll do well. He's mapping out his own career and is capable of seeing it through. As for the girl, well, when I was about his age, I went out with a girl like that once or twice. I soon found out that she was a silly little snob and I knew she'd be ashamed to be seen out with me in my old clothes. I remember that at the time, I thought I was being very tactful. Oh, Tom, laughed Kathleen, and you never told me. You always said. And so you were, the only girl I ever had. Kathleen met his gaze for a moment, feeling suddenly young and a little confused. Then Tom said, You've done splendidly with all the children. I'm very proud of the way you've brought them up to be self-reliant and straight-thinking. It isn't easy for any woman in wartime. You've done wonders, Kathleen. But what of Elsa? Kathleen jumped to her feet, pushing Tom away from her. I failed with her daughter, Tom, she sighed. Tom took hold of her hand. No, you haven't failed, he said quietly. Elsa is a very difficult case. I knew she would take Jim's death hardly, because she always took her troubles hardly as a little girl. But when she was little, he went on, I could always appeal to her sense of justice when she was difficult or naughty. She hated to feel she was being selfish and unfair. And that was the line I took tonight, knowing that you had tried to reach her through the baby, as I would have done if I'd been at home. I reminded her of Jim's mother. You knew Jim for a few months, I said, but his mother had him all his life until you came along, and 
he was her only child. She didn't even see Jim on his last leave because he spent all his time with you. And she hasn't even seen Jim's child. But has she reproached you? I asked her. Tom paused. And Kathleen knew by the way he leaned against the mantelpiece that he was very tired. No one can measure grief, I told her. And I'm not going to pretend that you will ever feel the same about any other man as you've felt about Jim. But you're young and your life's hardly begun. Can the love of a bride of a few months, perfect as it may be, be compared with the love and care and the sacrifices that a mother makes over many years? If your loss is great, Elsa, I said, what of hers? Kathleen saw that Tom was distressed, but she didn't know what to say to help, so she just sat quietly looking up at him. Next week, Tom said at last, I'm going to take Elsa and her baby down to stay with Mrs Slater. I've made her see that she's been selfishly grieving over Jim. I made her cry, and that hurt me, Kathleen. But I think she's happier now than she's been for some time, because there's something which she knows must be done, something that Jim would expect her to do. Poor Elsa. If only we could have spared her. It's so easy to say, better a smile for the living than a fountain of tears for the dead. Hers is a faithful heart, like yours and mine. And though she will begin to smile, for a long time every little thing... Tom broke off, abruptly, as he saw that Kathleen was crying. He dried her eyes on the handkerchief, which he had handed to young Reg, also at a critical moment. She didn't know which suffered most, she sobbed, wives or mothers, when they lost their menfolk in the war. But she must go up to Elsa. She would be all right, she was sure. But she must peep in at her and the baby. Kathleen dried her eyes bravely and hurried from the room. Opening the door of Elsa's room cautiously, at once she saw the empty bottle in the light of the dying fire. Tom must have given Tony his feed. She had actually forgotten it. Elsa and her baby were both fast asleep. The baby was in beside her, where she would leave him till she and Tom came to bed. Elsa's arm was around him. She already looked more at peace. Kathleen kissed them both lightly and stole from the room. She looked in at Reg on her way down and kissed him and tucked him up. Hearing movements in George's room, she tapped on the door. Yes, it was George. He loomed enormous in his pyjamas. She didn't turn up, he grinned. I've got a thriller. Thought I'd leave you and Dad to it. Good night, Mum. Downstairs, Kathleen found that Tom was about to fry the potatoes. Without saying very much, they finished the cooking and ate their supper. The picture of Tom sitting opposite to her in the homely kitchen was infinitely beautiful. There was that quietness in the house, which can only come when a family is at last fast asleep in bed. Just to think that she and Tom were grandparents, and still only in their early forties. She looked across at him with proud and shining eyes. He was shaking out what looked like a very fine black lace shawl. So it was, of cobweb substance, really exquisite. She handled it delicately with trembling fingers, wondering however she could use it. For your hair, Tom whispered. I've always loved your hair, Katie. And she knew, as he looked at her, that he loved her as dearly as ever. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society, The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. My name is Jean, and I'm from Ipswich. I joined Oddfellows because there seemed to be several benefits of it. 
But then I discovered that I could book um, a Fred Olsen cruise through them. And that was brilliant because a few of us went together from Ipswich and of course I got to know lots of people. And then gradually I found there are lots of social events. There's a cream tea coming up. I went to a lecture this week. So it's given me lots of different things to do, an easy way to organize cruises and a way of meeting new friends and doing lots of activities. So it's great. Hi, I'm Bill from Morton Marsh, North Gloucestershire. I've been an odd fellow for many years. In times of trouble, the help I've received from them has been wonderful. I am now serving my district at various levels, endeavouring to give back something to help other members. I can highly recommend being a member of the Odd Fellows. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people and they help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Odd Fellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your local branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let's get back to the story. Let me top up my coffee, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that little chat about it. You just heard I'll Soon Be Home Again, very smoothly read by Lucy, who also joins us today. Hello, Lucy. Hi, everyone. We also have Tracy from the Fiction Team. Hello, Tracy. Hi, dear. And Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. And before we get into the story proper, I have noticed that this was a new writer of the story, a debut author, Elizabeth Nolan. So I'm actually going to start with the author, but we've also just realised off off mic um, that we have another episode in this season from Elizabeth Nolan, Just a Mother, that we didn't realise at the time that (laughs) I'd picked two from Elizabeth Nolan. Um, So this is her first story for the friend, seemingly, because it says by a new writer at the top. And Just a Mother must have followed. So I was going to ask, well, I was going to ask if, if, if she wrote regularly for us or if she was a one-hit wonder, but she obviously did write regularly for us. Um, was it usual, was it more usual to have lots of one-off writers or more regular writers at this time, do we know? At this time? Um, I think it's or just always in been general? A, I think it's always been a fairly even mix because the People's Friend has always set out to give voice to new writers mm-hmm. but at the same time obviously they had the box office now Annie S1 not around at this time now she'd been dead for about two years by this point but um, I think they had you know a couple other people in the wings waiting to take over that mantle but uh, no I think somebody like Elizabeth Nolan who I'm afraid I know very little about mm-hmm. um, she could have been a new writer at this time and maybe was quite prevalent certainly this year I haven't found anything else by her but that's not to say she didn't write under another guise or didn't, you know, wasn't in there. Um, as we explained off, Mike, uh, the index is at the start of the bound files of the People's Friend, generally list by story title, mm-hmm. not author. Now, they changed later on after the 60s, I think it changes. But it's not very helpful when you're looking for a writer. Yes, because I think that's what we'll have discovered in the earlier Just a Mother episode, David obviously hadn't found anything about Elizabeth Nolan. I accidentally happened upon the next, the, what, the first story. But. but it tells you something about the quality of the writing then, doesn't it? That yeah. This stood out. Again, two of our stories and stood out. I think out. Just a Mother was a, we sparked a lot of discussion. Um, it was well written, I think. So, um, and actually that's very similar to, to today in The Friend, is that we, we very much champion new writers and we try to keep a mix of new and sort of a bank of writers do do we have many writers who do just do one or do they do we tend to try get them in more regularly into the mix if that makes sense i think you know it has remained essentially the same i think mm-hmm. we do have the very occasional writer who will only have one or two stories that they want to submit for for their own reasons but generally speaking we do try and encourage people you know once they've had one successful submission um, we try and encourage everyone and as Barry's just said we've part of the the very founding statement of the people's friend was to encourage 
you know, writers from all walks of life, men and women, all social stations, um, to get involved, to to have that opportunity to be published. So even now, um, we encourage, you know, a mix. And it's funny, we were actually talking about this today yeah. at our team meeting, about the importance of having a mix of established authors who um, are every week readers will recognise their mm -hmm. names on the cover, but then also bringing in new people. Because, you know, authors for, for a a variety of reasons choose to move on. They might move on to writing novels, and mm -hmm. um, they might have family commitments that mean they're not writing for a few years. Um, they might have a new job. They might, for any number of reasons, be studying. Yeah. That they let the writing lapse, um, or perhaps move on to something else. So it's really important. It's like sharks' teeth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some are always coming out, and some are always coming in, and it's important to keep that um, because we need authors for the future. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to keep the magazine. Viable. We need to make sure that we have enough authors, but it's equally important that we respect the authors that we do have because a number of people buy the magazine for them and hoping to see stories by them. Yeah. It's 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 things like that that really sort of bring it home for me just how like how similar the friend is from all the way back then to now mm -hmm. in that we were still doing the same kind of like mix of writers and giving new writers voices and things like that. So it's seeing it from like here's an old issue with a new writer and. We're still doing the same thing today, which is pretty amazing. I think when people talk about the people's strength, they often say it's evolution, not revolution, in yeah. that the, the heart and the core remains the same. Um, and we do move with the times. We acknowledge that families, for example, yeah. are are in many different guises now that perhaps they weren't when this story was, was written or not so prevalently. Um, but we still do keep our, you know, our heart and yeah. soul yeah. the same. Um, all the values are the same, family, friends... And a good story is a good story. Indeed. That's, you know, that never changes and you don't have to be lurid or controversial um, to write a good, strong story that appeals. And and, and that's And that's exactly it. I think yeah. it's about what appeals to the reader and that's never changed all these years later. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's quite a nice opening. Um, I will move on to the story. Um, the first thing I picked up with this is that this story, in, in comparison to some of the other ones we spoke about in this season, is very steeped in wartime. The main person, the main dad, Tom, he's been overseas. Kathleen's been holding the fort home. Reg, their son, was evacuated. Elsa's husband's died in the war. Like, there, every angle of this, there's some sort of effect from the war. And this was written in January. And if my Googling <laughs> was correct, the war ended in September. Um so do we know what the picture is like at the minute? Do they know the war is nearing an end? Is it winding down? Well, um, this is from the first week in January, so the first issue of 1945, and you'll typically find um, some inspirational stuff within the magazine from that period, you know, from especially from that period. Um, and there was a bit from the editor, and this is a little cutting. I don't know if people actually cut these out and put them into boxes, but there's a little cutting area called For Your Promise Box. Oh, it says, we expect the new year to bring us victory and peace. Let us let our resolve to be win our own victory over everything that is not kindly, generous or helpful in our attitude to others and so establish the peace that can only rule in loving hearts. Hmm. So this is, you know, this is meant to be a, um, a sort of looking forward, you know, the, an yeah. acknowledgement of what's happened. Um, and you, I found later on in the friend from this period there's a lot of talk about, you know, let's not hate our enemies. Okay, the, you know, the wrong has been done, that needs to be acknowledged and punishment be due, but, you know, let's make it, um, let's make it fair. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's quite an interesting thing to start with and bear in mind that this isn't a done deal. Okay, it's looking likely, mm -hmm. but still, who could tell what the Nazi machine still had up its sleeve? You know, they could have, they could have perfected... Uh, Nuclear I mean, I guess they were on the back foot by this point, but I mean, you just never know. And they're just well worth bearing in mind that the papers on this page are still full of people dying on the front line. Yeah. So it's not a done deal. So the fact that they've decided to bring this guy home, uh, it's an interesting choice at this time. And people were being demobilised to a degree, as far as I can tell. Um, but I do wonder, I do wonder how people reading this perceived this. Is this... Is this, oh, well, isn't he lucky he's getting out? Yeah. Or, or is this a, 
oh, this is a positive, optimistic mm-hmm. thing. This is something to aspire to. This is this is a good sign. I'd be curious to know about that. What were your guys' takes on what the what we think the author was doing in terms of reflecting the time? I think that from the tone of the story, it's clear that everyone was very war weary. Um, mm-hmm. There's a couple of mentions, for example, in the story about how. Um, Kathleen is just exhausted. She just feels worn out with holding the fort, as you say, with trying to, trying her very best, wor- worrying about what her husband's going to think. And that's not that's only within the family kernel, if, as it were, the family unit. That's not even the wider picture. Mm-hmm. Um, just a reminder as well that everyone's got their own family stuff going on, even though there are these huge, you know, um, huge events going on on a on a sort of world stage and a world platform. There's also little things going on in everybody's life too. I thought Kathleen was a legend, <laughs> the way she held everything together. And I think you could probably transport this, the kernel of this story, to possibly any era. You know, but it tends to be, not always, but it tends to be the mum that holds everything together. Yeah. Um, and my God, she had her work cut out in this, did she not, with everything that was going on. And she just handled everything with aplomb while worrying about, obviously, what Tom was going to think and I didn't it didn't come across that she was scared of him it was more you know she wanted everything to be just right for him coming home it Mm -hmm. wasn't that you know he was a bad person or a threat or anything like that so I just thought she was an incredible character and you could put her in any year I think from whenever and I think we can all I think we all know a Kathleen Mm -hmm. or two without a doubt and I think yeah, so many readers would relate to her. Absolutely. You know, be completely exhausted of, you know, so we're talking about the sixth year of war. Yeah. Um, you would just be so willing it to be over and so weary of it all, I think. I think it was so realistic the way, obviously, Elsa has postnatal depression, mm-hmm. which is something that would never really have been touched upon back then. You know, it's such a... It's a common thing, I suppose, you could say, but... You know, back then, it would just wouldn't have been entertained almost. See, I think it's... this is something fascinating about The Friend, is that, you know, I think a lot of people have a perception of The People's Friend and the type of topics we cover. But actually, the further back you go, it seems to me that they do actually touch on really big yeah. things, yeah. Yep. you know, that you've, you wouldn't really imagine that they would have dealt with quite contentious things, um, family issues and so on. Because I think it's probably only been maybe within the past sort of five or six years that we would have had stories mm-hmm. that touch on postnatal depression or, you know, motherhood not immediately being, you know, seen as this amazing thing. And so I thought this was very realistic and I quite admire back in 1945 that it was dealt with and mentioned and not really tried to cover it up. It was obvious what was going on. Um, so yeah, just thought I, I really enjoyed this one. I think it also paints a picture of a family, as you say, as being less than perfect, but still a great unit. Yeah, you know, it's not maybe ideal, and um, he still says "ain't." Yes, <laughs> gets, gets picked up, and their shoes all over the place. But does that really <laughs> matter? No. I feel like Kathleen deserves a bit more justice because, to me, it kind of feels like she's holding down the fort and keeping everything together. But then there's this one problem of Elsa, which Tom just sweeps in and fixes. And I kind of yeah. felt like it was trying to, I don't know, take a bit away from Kathleen and be like, oh, look how... Like, Tom came home and everything was magically fixed. I can understand why you came to that conclusion, because at first that did go through my mind as well. But I, I don't know, I think it allowed him to contribute, basically, because mm-hmm. it's all about Kathleen and the family, and I know... Tom's been at war but you know if he'd just to come back in he sort of had to bring something to the table other than just saying I have been doing a grand job thank you so I think it allowed his character um to sort of perhaps come in and see the situation with fresh eyes it also also allowed him to interact with his daughter in a different way than he did with his sons so it's, it's a nice I guess again another optimistic tale of a man coming back um not so emotionally damaged that you can't relate to family life. Um, I, can, I can take your point. Yeah, it does look like he's kind of swept in to save the day. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of very pragmatic with the boys, but there's an emotional connection yeah. with the daughter, which I, I, I quite liked. Yeah, and I think it was quite insightful of him, you know, when he's speaking to Elsa to say, 
you know, your husband's mum, your mother-in-law had him a lot longer than you and she's doing without him. So there was a quite insightful there and it's appreciating well, this, the this, mother again. This is quite interesting because I have a very t- different take on this. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed the story, but the, bi- the thing I take issue with and the biggest red flag for me is this scene and with Tom's reaction to Elsa and her grief. Because to me... And and um, I don't. You might not have heard our first story, Changing Heart, which deals with very different, di- similar things of grief, but very differently. To me, he's basically saying that she just should get on with it because she's being selfish. And oh well, Tom's mum's had it worse. Um, and actually, that's your fault because she didn't get to see him when he went off to leave. And you know, and I just. Like you say, Alice is very obviously depressed, postnatal depression, struggling with a baby. And just, I know it's, it's through the lens of today. This is just not the therapy that you would have got. Um, but my argument is that I don't think it's just of the time because, like I said, the story we had with the changing hearts deals with this theme of a mother versus a daughter's grief in a very different way by saying that they're different but both felt just as keenly and just as valid. So to me, I think... Tom had the bad take of being like, well, actually, the mum's got it worse because I don't think you can compare people's grief. Is my take. (laughs) No, I I, I do. Absolutely. I think that's fair enough. But I think for Tom's character, it was written in a roundabout way for him to appreciate motherhood almost. Yeah. And appreciate, you know, the, the, the women in the family. I think that was possibly just a subtle way it maybe wasn't so subtle the way he spoke to Elsa, but I think that was just to allow him to be a fully formed character rather than just, you know, mm. the sort of hero coming back from the war. And, you know, so I, I, I kind of understand why. You also wonder how there. much of it is purely of the time, you know, the keep calm and carry on, stiff upper lip type um, stereotype, you know, which was very much the mantra then, wasn't it? It was, you know, pull yourself together. Well, yeah. it wasn't quite as, I mean, I always think that's, that kind of thing's quite cold in its way, you know, it is just like, it is like shrugging off other people's concerns and worries and it's just like, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, you just get on with it. Um, when you were talking about this story being almost timeless and, you know, something could drop into today's friend almost in a way, I thought it was, that's an interesting observation because I think, I think the writer was really tapping into the zeitgeist and what was happening in the world at the time. And there was a, a few articles I found in papers from December 1944 and around that period uh, in which officialdom acknowledged the work of mothers or housewives. Um, there was one that says, Nation thanks Army of Housewives. And this is the Minister of Health who is acknowledging the, the good work that uh, so many had done the, the previous uh, summer when there'd been a, there was a concerted blitz and so many people were made homeless and they'd opened their doors. Mm-hmm. But you see it throughout, the people are acknowledging the, the hard work done. And I, I wish I'd taken this one, uh, this one particular story, but basically saying, um, if you're looking after a household and munitions and holding a job down in munitions and, and you're doing all the stuff that you read about in this story, then you've had basically the toughest job because you've been doing it 24-7. Yep. There's no switch off, there's no shift. There's You, you don't get any downtime, you're doing this full time, all the time, and you're doing it alone. And, you know, everything else in the world is built around family. It still is to a large degree, but you're having to do all the work of the mum and the dad. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, so it's being acknowledged. It's, it's, it's out there. People are, are understanding this. So I think that was quite, it's quite interesting that they, she's managed to tap into that and, and take it into this story. I also think I was thinking about Tom's character. I mean, the way he went about this, yes, he's tried to connect emotionally, which I think was quite healthy, but bear in mind, he's an engineer. He takes a pragmatic approach. So what he's done is a compare and contrast. He's a, he's a wonderful engineer. He basically builds bridges. That's literally <laughs> and figuratively what he's doing. So uh, to me, it was very in keeping with the character. Yeah, I can understand why you might not like that, but I think within the, the context of the story, I, I thought that worked. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think it is... It is probably actually quite good that he would have even, even attempted it, you know, this kind of, of speaking to his daughter and trying to help her through this problem. But And it definitely is looking at it through, like, what we know now and, and 
how you deal with these problems now and that's not it basically that's not how you speak to someone who's going through something like that but and I can't see past that but I do understand I do love the story and like you say I think it would have been been so important and resonated with the readers at this time because it's very much looking at like what our family's going to look like after the war like it's very much this like okay so where are we going to go from here kind of thing and and all these things coming together so I think as well you've got to acknowledge that there is sometimes and mostly that special dad and daughter relationship very much so that the dad can get through to the daughter perhaps Mm -hmm. a little bit better than the mum could so there's maybe you know that's at play as well but I don't think we could just have had Tom come back through the door and say all right that's fine (laughs) never mind if you know that one's dropped out of school and that one's got a girlfriend that's a hoity-toity. We, we had to give him something, I think, definitely, his character something. So I, I think in context, that, that worked. I think there's an interesting idea, even in the first paragraph, when it's it's about Kathleen's reaction to her husband coming home. So initially, she feels a great flood of joy and relief sweeping over her. And then, almost immediately, all sorts of doubts and regrets had flooded her mind. She was sure Tom would be disappointed in all the children and think she had neglected the house and garden. And I think, you know, they were maybe tapping into something there as well. There was a possibility that hopefully the war was coming Mm -hmm. to an end. Women who hadn't seen their husbands for perhaps years were now looking at the distinct possibility that they were going to come home and discover everything was a shambles. Where where the husband's going to think they'd they'd done a poor job? Did they feel worried that the husbands would think they'd let them down, let the children down? I think that's a very real fear that they were tapping into. Um, because even if you knew you'd totally done your best and yeah. you know that things were basically ticking along okay you'd still have that n- niggling worry you know is it how is he going to feel about with it with anything it's just that thing, oh, God, things are about to change a lot yeah. exactly and i do find sorry i just i just have to mention i do find it quite funny that george would be a big disappointment to his father that's a bit george he is the 1940s equivalent of a soft boy isn't he he's a <laughs> dandy know. a hyper uh, and a dandy what's that what what do you mean by that? He's pretentious, yeah. basically. He likes right. Russian plays. That's, that's the... Is it Yeah, that kind of idea. Yeah, but he's... He, yeah, basically. He's, he's basically taken on this to, to impress a girl, which is, yeah. you know, fair enough, George. It's fine. <laughs> you know what I was really liked in those sort of opening paragraphs? It was a bit... We were talking about the uh, postnatal depression and how it's, it's never really sort of not been touched upon until fairly recently. And I thought the introduction to it was really quite clever. It was just like three simple words as uh, Kathleen comes in and she shouts up the stairs and uh, the, the daughter replies, a faint, yes, mum. Mm-hmm. And they're like, faint, yes, mum. is like, yeah, I mean, she's feeling faint because mm-hmm. she is a woman. It's just, I thought, oh. And yeah. it, that to me just signals that, oh, there's something, obviously there's something not quite right with her there. Um, and it was just, I don't know, there was something about that I just liked. It was just like, it was a soft start yeah. to it. It didn't yeah. just jump in. It was just like, here's a clue to, yeah. there's something not right within the household. Um and he didn't sort of didn't beat about the head with it. Yep. It was a nice a nice intro to that, and you just understand where this anxiety. I, th- I've, I started to get a real sense of where Kathleen's anxiety was coming from at that point, and it wasn't just about the the mess in the garden and so on. It was there was something more serious, but they were going to build into it. I really like the line Elsa put down her book as if reluctant to come back to the world because it's mm-hmm. that reading as escapism, yep. and she's clearly just yeah. not present. Um, I think was and I think that just she had to look um, Kathleen had to look after baby Tony she didn't have the luxury of perhaps sitting really getting into a deep conversation with Elsa because she had so much to do Mm -hmm. and she had to look after that baby as well so so her her support is more pragmatic than emotional at that point as well I mean I suppose you can argue it's both but she's just she's doing what she has to do to get through this whole story is actually anxiety inducing really isn't (laughs) it (laughs) It's also reassuring, though, because, you know, we need Kathleen's, don't we? But what isn't touched upon, and I don't see this anywhere in this story, is any sense that Kathleen didn't need Tom or felt she didn't need Tom. She's been holding this down now for, like, whatever, three years since he went abroad to do whatever he's doing. I mean, it's weird as well within the context of this story. No regiment is mentioned, no place, no no theatre of war. It's just he's been abroad building bridges, I guess, whatever that entails. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no sense that you know he's going to come back and go. Oh, she doesn't need me. 
Yeah. Which would have, I thought it would have been a nice yeah, juxtaposition. Yeah. It is, it's a nice, you make a good point. I like, it's a nice touch because she says just, there's some weather, she says just for Tom being there, she felt a lot better. And it's not saying that like, there's nothing that she, there, there wasn't anything that she couldn't do without him or anything. It was just obviously in a loving relationship. Yeah. You're having your partner there, just being there is, is enough. It, it makes you yep. feel better. So it's a quite a nice. I think there's real warmth yeah, between the, the couple. Yeah, yeah. I like the bit, there's a moment um, where he takes the baby from her, just as yeah, he had done. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was so real. Yep. You know, you can just, just like imagine, yeah, you can just imagine that happening. It's Indeed. subtle and, yeah. It's cleverly written, I think, I, I isn't it? I thought it was fabulous. I think there's a little bit of humour as well. It acknowledges the seriousness of a number of situations, obviously the ongoing war, the situation with Elsa. Um, but I think there is a, a warmth about the family yeah. and that even though it's maybe not perfect, everybody's still rubbing along together okay and they're getting through it. And I think that really does, you know, come through. Yeah, and George makes the tea. Tea's ready, mum. The, kid, <laughs> no, the kids are very that. well written. Yeah, I really I, enjoy the kids. They're real and they're, they're endearing. But what's, uh, what's going on with Reg? Reg is the, the black sheep of this family <laughs> and I oh, can't Reg. quite figure him out. So there's a bit where she's talking about Reg. And this is, I thought this was really interesting. This is a very rare example of almost criticism of the evacuation process. Mm -hmm. And it says, ever since he'd come back yeah. from that farm to which he'd been evacuated, Reg had been a handful. And that's that's an interesting one. That's someone who's coming back from this situation, sent away for their own safety, presumably, and is now acting up. It's never really touched upon. She doesn't go into it any further. But then later on in that same paragraph... She talks about um, he won't go to bed, he won't do his errands, he won't, he won't do as he's asked. And on Saturdays, sometimes, he was out for the whole day fishing or pretending to fish. And what aroused that suspicion? What is he up to? What does she think he's up to? And it's not touched upon again. And I, yeah. I, I'm, I was like, I want to know a little bit more about yeah. Reg. He's, he's, There's a dark secret there. There's, there's <laughs> something going on it, here. It mentions as well that he wants to be a farmer. I wonder if, you know, it's this kind of like, almost resentment of like you send your kid away to be safe but then they maybe end up bonding with that family yeah. so much that or you know you might depending on the age that they are when they go they don't know you as well and the fact that yeah. he wants to be a farmer like this family he stayed with must be quite difficult when they come back and yeah, yeah it's an interesting thread to pick up on it's, he's finding it hard to slot back and in, back into the family so maybe that's making her worry as well about tom in a subconscious way because ah. Reg is going oh you know this isn't for me That's and she's thinking oh is Tom going to be the same so I think there's something yeah. quite reassuring in the fact that you know this is a nice family mm -hmm. but things are not always smooth and I think even you know whatever time zone you put that into present day Second World War, yeah. whenever. It's so true. It's just so authentic. And I think there is always all about the reader. And I think so many readers reading this story would be saying, oh, yeah, well, that's just like yeah. us. That yeah. Oh, I know how she feels. That cupboard. The cupboard is always overflowing. The garden's a mess. You know, all these things. Getting and cleaned up for people visiting. And, yeah. yeah. She's developed, the, the, the writers developed the characters, all of the characters in a way that some never are in some mm. of the stories we've read um, yeah. and she's done it in, in quite a subtle way as well mm. so all these small changes to the behavior which is all coming to the fore now this conflict is supposedly coming to an end i thought it's quite well yeah. i thought it's quite well written in that regard what do we think of this for the magazine today fiction team and what would we do to it or you know um interesting it's the the tom's reaction and the way he deals with Elsa, I think we would have to look at that very carefully, obviously. <laughs> but we wouldn't want to take away from Tom mm -hmm. at all. Um, so, but the, you know, the, the the structure of the story, the characters, I think, fantastic. The, yeah. the, I think it's a cleverly yeah. written story. I think um, the character of Kathleen seems to me to sort of personify so many women at that time who were holding down a job, keeping a family together, trying to keep the spirits of the men on the front or wherever they happen to be fighting all over the world, trying to keep their spirits up. Mm -hmm. um, so many of the readers would be able to relate to her. Um, as you say, there's some things that obviously would not translate quite so well, like a slightly hardline attitude, but that could be subbed. Yep. Um, I think the actual story is full of warmth. It's full of family feeling. 
Um, it's very friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's very real, it's very isn't it? Real. With the way the kids are, and you know, they're all very different personalities and whatnot. But they are still endearing, and they obviously absolutely adore their mum. Yeah. yeah, and they're they're good kids yeah. at heart, and I think that's made clear yeah. all the road through. We've been talking about the the writer and and what she did with the friend, and I keep wondering. This is like. You could imagine there being a sequel to this. There could be a follow-on. You could follow the the trials and tribulations of this particular yeah. family throughout the whole, you know, nineteen forty-five demobilisation process. Um, there's more to be said because they're, even within the context of the story, it feels like they're all growing. Yeah, yeah, and not maybe not in the same direction. And there's that that's that in itself is interesting. Yeah. Well, what happens to Reg? What happens to George? You know, because Elsa, as much, she isn't going to magically get better overnight. So, what's no. her recovery process yeah. like? Does Reg go work on a farm? And it could be a yeah. serial it almost, yeah, could it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it would all be have a good one. Episodes. Yeah, you, yeah. you could focus on each one, and you know, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If we did that now and wrote a serial yeah. based on a story from what you know, that would be amazing. Like nearly eighty years ago, yeah. yeah. And and just back to what you were saying about you know, I, as much as I'm wrecking on this this one bit, it is an easy fix, and it? it's it's all you all, literally yeah. the rest of the story is brilliant. All you need to do is change the words that he's saying, but they, yeah. that that moment that he has is absolutely fine, and I think is very important. But it would just we would just soften his actual yeah. speech a bit. I think but I don't absolutely. think you'd want to dilute Tom's character though. No, and you, you've got to admit in, in this instance he just come back from the war so you know he's maybe not feeling particularly you know he's maybe having a more pragmatic approach to life and its problems perhaps but I I think he's still a great character and it's interesting how so many things just transcend time so the dad and daughter relationship Mm -hmm. um, the married couple's relationship the fact that the kids are sometimes playing up but essentially good children um, you know, they'll they'll ring a bell for people then and now. Yep. You know, that's well, that's the secret of the success of the friend. I think overall, I think it's a, quite a very reassuring story. I think someone's used that word mm-hmm. earlier. Positive. Reassuring, it's yeah. reassuring, and it is very supportive. And the fact that he comes home and is so supportive and happy, and they're all still very much in in love and stuff. I think. If you were a family in 1945 with um, one of your even several members of your family serving abroad mm-hmm. this is what you'd aspire to this is this is what you'd want this is how this you'd want yeah. the, the homecoming to to play out in some respects um and obviously not everyone is lucky as that but yeah again i think it was quite um, a positive start to the to a new year it does it does kind of make you feel sorry for the because i imagine there would have been some men that came home being like Where's my tea, dinner on the table? Yeah. And why is the kids like this? And you've done but, a horrible job. But we do have stories of men coming back and really struggling to get back in yeah. to the, their old life um, because that and that is a was a, a real thing as well. And and we've had really powerful stories that deal with that, and rightly so. And I think that's why this story is makes you feel warm inside because it is nice to see that that other side of it as well i think something that we've talked about at our short story writing workshops online is that you know, sorry, i just has a little plug <laughs> indeed <laughs> have you heard of our short story is that you should feel a connection there should be a yeah. connection there that there should be a change in in one of the characters or in a situation um, and that you should end the story feeling Ah, oh, you know, I just feeling so much better for having read it. And I just think this yeah. ticks all the boxes. Fantastic. I think that's a good point to move on to our five-star ratings. Um, I'll start with Barry this time. I'm going to give this a four. Ooh, okay. so I was quite impressed with this. There's um, a lot going on, but not very much. There's not much fat in the bones, really. The, you know, everything's there with a purpose. Mm-hmm. And it drives the plot and it drives the characters. Um, there's nothing that I don't think there's much you could take out really any reason we're docking one star then in particular or just well, well yeah because you changed the rating systems and I'm kind of lost now I'm adrift <laughs> I, I knew where I was with 10 and I'm now I'm, I'm confused I and I think to, be, to have a 5 you're going to have to really impress okay. and this, this this is an, an impressive story yeah. but I'm, I'm we've had a, our first episode was 
across the board five stars. No, I think that's... So I'll have to look no. back. You'll have to look back. I don't back. believe that. I don't believe that. Um, I am also going to give it a four. Um, I think we know why I'm docking my own yep. style. I'm not going about it again. <laughs> uh, Tracy? I'm going to go four and a half. Um because I, I, I think she has written a number of characters and given them completely their own voice, made them believable and likeable and relatable, and that is not an easy thing to do mm-hmm. at all. Um, so, yeah, a four and a half from me. And finally, Lucy? I am going to say five. <laughs> and the reason that I'm going to say five is that on The People's Trend, it's always all about the reader. Yeah. And I was trying to imagine myself in... January of 1945, as a People's Friend reader, weary, absolutely sick to the back teeth of war, just want a return to normality, probably have people in the family who are away, um, might be worried about, you know, what's going to be happening once the war does end, Mm -hmm. all these concerns going on. And I think you can see our readers sitting down with their uh, rationed tea and reading this story and feeling so much better for it. And I think it it ticks all the friend boxes in that it's entertaining, it deals with some challenging topics, but always in a people's friend style mm-hmm. so that there's an upbeat resolution, so there's a positive resolution. And I think at the end of it, our reader of 1945 would have felt so much better and thought, do you know what? If Kathleen and Tom can get yeah. through it, I can get through it. And it would just be really positive for them. Um, and also, like we were talking earlier about, you know, how, what was the tone of the friend at that time? What was the the message they were trying to send about, you know, how, how we move forward now in terms of no sort of repercussions and fairness and so on? And I think people were at that stage then where they just wanted it to be over. They wanted a fair resolution. But I think they would definitely feel better for reading this. Fabulous. Ka- Kathleen would have read the, re- the People's Friend, wouldn't she? I think I so. Think she, she didn't have in time. In the cupboard. That was, <laughs> her, that was her escape. <laughs> she should have been doing the gardening. But. She'd have rolled it up and scalped Reg with it, wouldn't she? <laughs> oh, what a fabulous note to end on. Um, thank you, Lucy, for reading the story for us and to Tracy and Barry for joining us for the discussion. And as always, to you for listening. All that's left for me to say is until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Follow on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the friend archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine delivered, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you have an exclusive offer to subscribe to get your first 13 issues for just £6. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Here's to you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend. <laughs>